The following podcast is sponsored by you. If you'd like to donate to help us continue providing the best VCU men's basketball podcast out there, please use the link in the show notes for this episode. Proceeds from your donations will be used to pay for hosting fees, which are the most expensive ongoing part of providing this show. Thank you in advance, and go Rams! Welcome to Rams Rewind, a podcast that looks back at all of the action from VCU men's basketball. In this special off-season edition, host George Templeton reviews what's been happening since the last time the Rams hit the court. And now, here's George. All right, Rams Rewind, we're back. We're going to talk about the VCU season coming up. First and foremost, if you like what you hear and you want to shoot us some dinero, donate it to us. There's a link to the PayPal in the description on Podbean and your other various podcast platforms, you gave us such great support last year, and we can and we just and we valued it so much. And if you decide to do it again, we really appreciate it. We will shout you out on the pod when you do it. We thank you very much. Now, we are going to talk about this season coming up with Zach Joaquin from the Richmond Times Dispatch, who, in addition to all the other things he does for them, does cover VCU and. I, I am happy to say I will be seeing him live and in person for the first time because he will be in Orlando, the ESPN Events Invitational, like I will be. So that, will, that will be pretty cool, too. We are also, you can't see it, but we are also joined by his very cute dog, Harvey. And that's <laughs> awesome. And we love that, too. We love we love the animals. We, I love the kitties more than the puppies, but we love the kitties. So, you, might hear, you might hear him a little bit. Yeah, we might hear him. It's all right. That's all right. So we welcome Zach back in, real great friend of this pod, and we're very happy to have him. And we're just going to get some of the tough, we're going to get some of the less fun things to talk about out of the way first before we talk about the season coming up. Let's start with Joe Bamisil, which is the big issue. You know, he didn't get the waiver. We were right, everybody was rightly upset. And to the credit of a lot of national outlets it became an actual story in national outlets what happened i know there's an appeal what is the situation with that appeal is there a chance he could still be real ruled eligible or are we really going to just have to wait a year on that i think there's about a 20 percent chance he's ruled eligible i think it's certainly more likely than not that that joe doesn't play this year but from everything that Ed has said, from everything that Ryan has said, they're holding out hope. It's a different set of eyes um, and ears making the decision now. Um, Joe got to Zoom with some representatives from the NCAA. It's not the same people hearing the appeal as it was that that denied the initial waiver request. Um, and from what I understand, it's the appeal process is maybe a little more personal. And Joe actually gets to sit down and have a Zoom with these people and kind of state his own case, which he didn't necessarily get to do in the original process. And so hopefully there's some human element there hearing Joe's story from him um, about the the health struggles for his dad, uh, about his own mental health battles and, and how that's contributed to his transfer and going back to Richmond and being closer to family. And so I think that there's some hope that people actually talking to him face to face over a, a video conference, but seeing him hearing his story personally might, might sway them. Um, from a rationale perspective, I think to a lot of people, it doesn't make much sense why you would allow the transfer to Oklahoma based on um, 
on on Joe's mental health and then not allow the transfer back to VCU where his family is. Um, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But um, as my esteemed colleague David Teal wrote in his column that's coming out um, on Friday that I read today, relying on the NCAA for for rationale um, in in these instances is is a losing battle much of the time. Um, and so from what I've heard from Ryan, from what I've heard from Ed, there's still hope. Um, and especially given the, the next topic that I imagine we're going to move on to here, which is some more sad news, having Joe would be really nice because without Joe and without Sean Barristow for the first, what's now five to seven weeks, it was a six to eight week timetable. Um, when he initially got the injury a week ago, uh, being short, those two guys for almost the entirety, um, of non-conference play before Sean comes back would be a huge blow. Forget our on-court frustrations at not having Joe Bamisil. Everything he's going through, moving back to Richmond, looking after his dad, which we doc, which has been talked about and documented. Oh, and he's just you know trying to go to class and be a student. Mm-hmm. And then you throw this mess in here. I, I'm I'm infuriated for him, and I'm infuriated because this these are things that can't help. He's got a lot on his plate, and I guess the question I ask is. How, is he holding up all right through all this does this nonsense he's having to go through? From everything that I've heard from Ryan and around the program, yes. Um, Joe is incredibly upbeat in terms of his interactions with teammates and coaches and people in and around the VCU program. Um, I think that that's been – look, even if he's not on the court this year, I think that he's going to contribute to the fabric of this team culturally um, because he's a positive guy. Um He's, he's a bit of a glue guy from a personal perspective. Um, and I think that everyone in and around that program has already grown to, to love him and to care for him a great deal. Um, you know, when a guy comes in open about his battles um, personally, and like you said, with the health of his dad, like he has been, I mean, how can you not, you know, have some empathy for, for the human being in there, uh, college basketball aside, right? And so I think that everyone in and around the VCU program has very much felt that for him. And he's going to be a part of this team whether he's on the floor or not. Um, and he's been a, a part of the basketball community here for a while. He's a, a Monacan grad, but also played a little bit at St. Christopher's um, early in his high school time. And so I think that there's a lot of people in and around the Richmond basketball community rooting for him and, and wanting him to see out on to see him out on the floor in a black and gold jersey. If it's not this year, then, then next year. Well, God bless him. And I hope it's this year. But honestly... There is something to, if we way after wait a year, seeing him come out next year will be such a lift for that team, whatever it's composed and looked like, that, that that'll be great as well. And yes, the other piece of business that wasn't so great, Sean Barristow's foot injury, you know, happening in practice. Unfortunately, this has become somewhat of a VCU tradition, somebody getting hurt early in the season. Thankfully, this is not a full year injury like in other years. You know, but the nature of this injury, how bad, how bad was it at the time? And what were people fearing? And now what is the, what is the outlook and the prognosis? Because it sounds like it has improved from when the, the news first broke. It's a fifth metatarsal Jones fracture. Um, I'm not a doctor and can't give you the ins and outs of what exactly that means, but a bone in his foot is broken. It was a non-contact injury. And so that's always tough, you know, I think from an an NFL perspective during the season, the ones that you're really scared of uh, from a long-term perspective, a lot of the time are those non-contact injuries, right? When you just see someone cut wrong or or step wrong and then go down, um, those can be scarier 
in terms of the, the prognosis going forward than taking a big hit or something like that. Like Toby took an elbow to the to the eye, right? And that's why he couldn't play in the black and gold game and he had to get stitches. And I'm sure like that was perhaps more gruesome because it was probably bloody and he had to get stitches above his eye and everything. But he's by all indications going to be good to go for the beginning of the season and everything. This is a non-contact, you know, broken bone in the foot. That's certainly more of an issue for Sean. And man, all of the assumptions were that he was going to start. I think when he comes back and when he's healthy, he's going to slot right into that starting lineup. I'm looking at my story that I did right now. The timetable is hairy here. Return exactly six weeks from the date of his surgery would have him coming back to action on Friday, December 1st against Norfolk State. That's a decent Norfolk State team um, that has won 20-plus games in their conference the last couple of years. That's not a cupcake coming into the Seagull Center. And then the big target, presumably, would be a return to action on Wednesday, December 6th, when VCU hosts Memphis um, in what is the marquee game of, of the non-conference schedule. I know everyone's already excited about that and Penny Hardaway coming into the Seagull Center. To have Sean back for that game, um, it would be trial by fire. You know, having that be your first game of the year, and that would certainly be tough for him. So I think ideally you'd really like him back for that Norfolk State game so he can kind of get back into the swing of things and, and be ready to go close to 100% perhaps for, for Memphis. Um, but if it's the full timetable, then it's going to be almost all of the non-conference schedule. Um, it, against McNeese State, Sanford, Radford, and Seattle, those first four games, right, you're probably not – heartbroken not to have him it still sucks but vcu is going to be favored in those first four games regardless of not having bear still where they're really going to miss him is in orlando um yep. where we'll both be that's that's the huge miss here you would hope still that they're going to be four and going into orlando but that's such a huge opportunity to build your ncaa tournament resume especially with a non-conference schedule that has no true road games and not a whole lot of opportunities to to pick up resume boosting wins you wanted to to get two games in Orlando, right? You probably that that's I think that's a realistic hope for BCU to say we want to win two games in Orlando. Um, if you win three, that's you obviously be over the moon. But to hope for it's going to be tough to win two games there without one of your best players, a guy that garnered some preseason All Conference votes. Um, I believe was behind Shulga as the only other guy that was really up there in the in the A10 preseason ballots. Um, if he misses the full eight weeks from the date of his surgery, he would return December sixteenth. Um, when BCU hosts Temple, a Temple team that BCU lost to last year. Um, so it'd be nice to have him back for that game. Um, but that would just leave two non-conference games against Maryland Eastern Shore and Gardner-Webb left before BCU begins A-10 play. So it sucks. Um, it's a big blow. I think perhaps in hindsight, you're maybe <laughs> people you know weren't thrilled about not having the true road games and that the non-conference schedule is, is relatively light. I think maybe the fact that you're missing one of your best players now for much of that non-conference slate, maybe you reel that back a little bit and say that it's good that this team has an opportunity to to ease in a little bit. But Orlando is the big miss, and I think your big hope right now is that you can get him back for Norfolk State so that he has a game to, to get in the flow of things before Memphis. I, I mean, we don't know what things are going to look like by December 6th, and, and this may be a ludicrous take given given – that we don't know that. But I have to say, I am really opposed to his first game being against Memphis. I, yeah. I'm just not sure that that is the right thing. And if he can't if he can't make it for Norfolk State, I would almost rather they wait until Alcorn State December 10th. Uh, because that is just, that Memphis game, there's going to be, depending on what happens in Orlando, 
there's going to be so much on the line and there's going to be so much happening. That's, you know, right near the end of finals and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's going to, and it's the Christmas season. That game is going to be packed and crazy. I don't think there's any question about that. And I just wonder if that might be a little too much, even for somebody's experience as Sean Barristone's played big games, to have that be his first game. Because looking at the schedule, the Alcorn State game, if he has four games to get ready for conference play, I think that's going to be plenty. So that's yeah. that's my view on that. I don't know. I have no idea how Ryan Odom would what Ryan Odom would say to that if we asked him about it. But that that would be my concern. I do not like the idea of throwing him in in a game that's going to have so much on the line and be so emotional as Memphis is going. Nor do I. I'm I'm completely with you there. I think it helps that Ryan and Sean have a, presumably a close relationship, having followed him from Utah State. You know, it's not a guy that just transferred in and you're trying to feel out this injury. It's a guy that you know really well that started 35 games for you last year at Utah State. And so you guys are able to have, you know, that tough conversation about, hey, even if you're feeling ready for this game, I'm not putting you out there yet because I think that this is too much to, to jump right back into. Um, so you'd really hope that he could play against Norfolk State and great if he can play against Norfolk State, even if it's just some limited minutes, then maybe you can get him in against Memphis. And it's not even just for Sean. Right. It's, it's for everyone because you're going to have a pretty short rotation early in the year. It seems like here with Jacob Patrick leaving in the offseason, if Joe's not eligible and then if Sean is out, um, Harvey, shush. I'm sorry. My dog's talking to me. Um, but I, I, it's for everyone else. Right. Because you're going to get used to a starting five in this first section of the season that doesn't have Sean in it. And then all of a sudden, if you reinsert him, I think that's a lot to ask of the whole team chemistry wise to put such a key piece back in there, although they obviously have a lot of familiarity with him dating to the offseason. I'm really disappointed to not see Sean's passing ability early on in the year. Um, that's something that I'd heard a lot about, and it seemed like uh, whenever you were seeing a, a video from practice in the offseason of a dunk, then it was Sean throwing the lob um, to, to either Toby or Rose or Firm or something like that, and he led the team in assists in the black and gold game. And so I was super excited to see just how he facilitates everyone else's game. Um, I think that's particularly positive to see how well they pass the ball in the Mars Hill scrimmage, obviously against not great competition, but to be able to rack up the assists um, and move the ball collectively without probably possibly your best passer on the team. Um, I think that was definitely positive coming out of the Mars Hill game to see that there's still um, some really good collective ball movement without Sean out there. But I was excited to see that. And it's a shame we're not going to be able to see that for a while. Um, another element that comes to mind here is that Sean is a graduate student, right? And so this is it for him. Um, and so if it's up to him to any degree, um, I mean, I'm sure he's doing, he would be doing everything that he could to get back out there regardless. But given the fact that this is your last season of eligibility, um, I'm sure he's going to try and get back out there as soon as he can and be pushing the coaching staff and the medical staff to let him test it and push it. And so Ryan and, and the staff is going to have to be real careful knowing that you've got a kid whose who's, you know, college basketball eligibility is dwindling. He's going to want to be out there and we've got to try and you know, keep him from being his own worst enemy because we all know that you know, top athletes are always going to push themselves to be back out there as soon as they can. And a lot of the time they want to – feel like they're ready before they are. Um, and so I, I hope that Ryan and the VCU staff, you know, does a lot to protect him against himself because I'm sure he's going to want to push it to get back on the court as soon as he can. You mentioned the black and gold, uh, not the black and gold game, the Mars Hill game. 
And I know, and again, all the all the things aside, it's Mars Hill. They need to have some of their players. One of my friends, when I was on his pod last night, said Havoc is dead. And then this thought occurred to me after the after the Mars Hill game that we may have Havoc, the, a version of Havoc on offense. That the version of Havoc is quite literally anybody can score this basketball from almost anywhere on the court. And that's the Havoc now. Instead of it being on defense with the pressing and the trapping and everything else, it's on offense with watch your head because two or three different guys could dunk on you. Watch your head because this guy can shoot a three. That guy can shoot a three. That guy can shoot a three. Watch your head because if you don't, there's the, there's this beautiful pass going right by you to set up somebody for a layup or a dunk. I Again, we all know the caveats are, but the, the, the production in that game was startling. Me looking at that box score, my jaw dropped. You know, you don't see... T- you, you, when's the last time a VCU team made 40 field goals in a game, for God's sake? That's craziness. 40 for 65. So, you know, how did how do you how do you put that into context? How did you evaluate that game? What did Ryan Odom think of that? Because that had to even surprise him, I would have thought. One guy who was on the floor did not score in double figures. Michael Bell, right? Everyone else is in double figures. And Michael Bell looked good. He had eight rebounds, three assists, seven points. Like, he was certainly not a disappointing performance. And so there was really nobody on the court that you were disappointed in VCU. Those eight guys, too. I mean, like, we've talked about this being a short rotation. Um, if Sean's not out there for the time and if Joe's not eligible, all eight of these guys are, are really going to be leaned on heavily, right? And they're all going to play. And so I think that there's some positives to be drawn from that because nobody's you know really sitting on the fence of oh am i going to get minutes tonight it's like no we need all of you um and that keeps everyone engaged um early in the year for everyone to be contributing um the backcourt stood out right a, a ton um jason 21 points he's been shooting it from three so well to begin the year right i know they haven't played an actual game in the schedule yet but between this and the black and gold game um he looks like a scorer from the outside and i think going back to his high school days that, that we were touching on before we started recording here. Um, and his time at Richmond, he was always thought of as kind of a floor general and not a score first guard. He was a pass first guard who would set up his teammates. And so to see him shooting it from outside like he is has been fantastic. And then Zeb, five of 10 from three for a guy that we didn't see a whole lot of consistency in behind the arc last year. I think that was great to see them lead the team with 21 and 20. Um, and Zeb, 10 assists as well. That's a team high. Collectively, yeah, I think it's going to be a really aesthetically pleasing brand of basketball to watch. What were the assist numbers? 31 assists for the whole team collectively. That's awesome. I think that, man, for me, Havoc left the building a long time ago. I mean, I know we, we've touched on this um, in, in past times that we've talked for Rams Rewind, but Havoc left the building with Shaka. Uh, you know, I don't think that Will and Mike both had their own iterations of it, and it, there was definitely – it was definitely a team that still leaned on its defense under those two coaches. Um, but uh, we haven't played what people think of as Havoc from a full court pressing Briante Weber diving all over the place standpoint since Shaka was here. You know, um, it's been different iterations of it over the years. And this is going to be a big swing. But I think from a tempo standpoint, you're absolutely right. Ryan wants to get up and down the floor. He wants to get threes up early in the shot clock. And so it's they're certainly not going to be putting up 110 every night. Um, in the A-10 and in the non-conference slate. But this is a team that's going to score a lot of points, that's going to play at a fast tempo. And so, yes, I think from a um, – it could be a different spin on Havoc, if you will, from a from a tempo standpoint. 
and a team that's going to play really fast. Um, and maybe, you know, in doing that, you do force some sporadic play from opposition offensively. You know, I think when you're maybe playing from ahead and getting a lot of shots up, other you can tend to kind of lure other teams into wanting to play that style too and get up and down the floor with you. And so maybe that does lead to, to opportunities defensively like we've seen over the years because we all know that the Siegel Center is louder than, than anything, louder than a, a big dunk or a big three when you get, you know, open court steals and BCU gets going in transition and gets points off of his defense. Um, that's what this fan base loves. That's what this fan base has grown to expect from BCU. Um, and so I think you should certainly still get some of that. And something that stood out to me over the offseason too is Ryan saying that this BCU team personnel-wise mirrors his UMBC teams more than it does his Utah State teams. Um, and his Utah State teams were the ones that really stood out from an offensive metric standpoint and that Ken Palm loved in terms of their spacing and their three-point shooting and their passing and everything. And I think you're certainly going to see some of that, but his UMBC teams played tough defense, man. And this team has a lot of length. Oh my gosh, you touched on that. The team photo came out today and that that back row, this team has a ton of height and a ton of length. Um, and I think they're going to use that to clog a lot of passing lanes. And this certainly they're gonna, is They're going to need it against some of these teams in this league. There are some, team, there are some teams that have got some beast front courts that we're yes. going to be going up against. And you've got some huge lanky guards that VCU has, has, has always been known for. And then they're bigger in the front court than I remember over the years. I remember VCU teams who would recruit, you know, smaller, more mobile bigs who could get up and down the floor and who could play in the press and who sometimes would be really susceptible to when you had a dominant opposing seven-footer. That's not Rose and Firm. Um, and it's certainly not Toby. Um, those guys can jump out the gym and and there's not, you know, you're not going to get teams just posting up their seven-footer on a regular basis and taking advantage of any kind of size advantage down low. Um, this is a big physical VCU team. Firm and Rose are, are both really true rim protectors and rim runners um, who are going to crash the glass and have a lot of activity there. Um, and then Toby, man, we've, we've heard a lot in the offseason about how much his all-around game has improved, and I'm thrilled to to see him early in the year and, and see some of that pay off and what kind of role he plays for this team. I've seen two clips of Jason Nelson on, on Twitter X, whatever you want to call it. One was from the Black and Gold game. One was from the Mars Hill game. That jumper of his is a thing of beauty. And when he's square to the basket, I'm going to wonder how he ever misses. It's pretty, isn't it? And it's and it's been great on the catch. It, that surprised me because this is a guy that I think throughout high school played off the dribble a ton, and he did not have other members of his team facilitating for him. He was the facilitator. And so to see him in a team that you would expect is going to collectively facilitate – there's not, you know, one floor general like an Ace Baldwin that they're going to really depend on to, to run things. Um, I, I think that's going to be a team that is unselfish, is trying to find the open man. And so to see Jason excelling specifically on the catch and shoot um, has been wonderful to see. And I think you should see him and Zeb both finding a lot of space on the perimeter with a team that has bigs and, you know, hopefully Toby, because we've been hearing he's developing that. And Kawani, I absolutely can play on the perimeter. His skill set has really wowed me. He moves like a guard out there. And so there should be a lot of space around there for, for the for the guards to operate because um, you got to close out to some of those bigs too. And so excited to see what Jason can do on the catch and shoot. Man, I don't think he's going to shoot. What was he, five of eight? So I, I don't know if we're consistently going to see that. And Zeb was five of 10. But man, if those two guys are, are shooting it consistently, then that's huge for this team. And Max has been the big shot guy, right? I don't know how much we can really talk about the secret scrimmage 
because I didn't I didn't see the, any of the secret scrimmage. I, I I just know that it was widely reported that Max hit the game winner and VCU beat South Carolina. So and Max hit the uh, game tying three in the black and gold game too, right? And so I think we've already seen that he's probably that guy in, in late game situations that VCU wants with the ball in his hands. But from an outside perspective, I think Zeb, Jason, and Max are all going to contribute from three-point range this year. Well, and you mentioned Kawani Kawani. That was my other big takeaway because, you know, when I had when I did the pod about him and was talking with the gentleman out in California, you know, here's the guy coming off a torn labrum with which he played with, well, played an entire season with a torn labrum. So I was like, oh, maybe he's not going to be ready for the season. I saw that dunk in the black and gold game. I said, I guess his labrum is just fine. I think there was a little something extra in that dunk in terms of proving that he is good to go, right? I think he, he wanted to throw that one down a, a little extra emphatically. And I think I follow him on Instagram too. And I think he he posted something about, you know, how far his arm got back in that dunk. And so that meant, yeah, that meant something to him. He threw that one down as if to, um, to punctuate and, and say to everyone, I'm good to go going into the year. Um, and so, and he was productive at Cal last year too. It was a really bad Cal team, but he was probably the best player that they had. And so for him to have played that whole year with a torn labrum, that outside shot, I mean, he really just, he doesn't move like a big, he's six, nine and so lanky, but man, he, he moves out there like a guard. Um, and from the free throw line and from three point range, that stroke looks fantastic. When we look at these first four games and we're all looking at teams again, that are Slated to finish top four, top three, top four in their league. Some of them are league favorites. Sanford and McNeese State are preseason favorites in their leagues. We know they got to win them all, obviously, because they're at home. But what should we be looking for that will that will give us that will give fans confidence that they can go down to Orlando and mix it up with some big time teams that they're going to face? Chemistry in this rotation. For sure, I think because it's a group that you're not going to have Sean, presumably not going to have Joe. And so to see that those eight guys that we've talked about, you know, are enough from a rotation standpoint, I think will be key. Fats and and Michael Bell are going to be getting big minutes, you know, a a redshirt freshman and a true freshman. So you're asking a lot of some young pieces here. And so that would be the biggest thing for me is to see that those young pieces are ready to step in and and play big key minutes. and some of those matchups, again, I know there was a lot of scoffing when this non-conference schedule came out, you know, people wanting for true road, ga- road games, people wanting for for bigger tests. But I think VCU and uh, Director of Basketball Operations, Kelsey Naki, has, has really carried on the tradition of finding those teams that you look at initially on the schedule. And you kind of say, who's, who's that? What did they do last year? And then by the end of the year, you go, oh, I get it. Okay, that's a team that, that, that won a bunch of games in league play and that are boosting up the resume. I always go back to St. Peter's. Um, that's the perfect example a few years ago, right, when BCU played them in non-conference and everyone said, who the heck is this? And then by the end of the, of the NCAA tournament, St. Peter's was the, the toast of the town, right? Um, and so BCU has been phenomenal over the years at identifying those programs um, that are maybe flying under the radar going into the year that you have a chance to bring into the Siegel Center and get a win. And as you said, um, I think these are a few teams that are very much in that vein. Seattle was good last year. Um, I'll be looking, I'll be playing Where's Waldo against McNeese State, uh, looking for Will Wade in the crowd. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think he's allowed to physically be in the arena, but man, I wouldn't put it past Will to be wearing a cowboy hat and have a fake mustache on. You know, oh, somebody it's the, the right away. Nobody's going to miss that muck of his. Seriously. <laughs> That's why, as Rock, when I had Rocco Miller on, he said, you know, he probably 
scheduled VCU first because he knew he was going to be suspended because there are the three games after that are all non-D1s. So I don't <laughs> tell you everything about that. Doggone Will Wade. The less said about him, the better. All right. So we get through. We'll get through the tournament. We've talked a lot about that. We'll probably fit. There'll be a lot more talk about it as we get closer to it. I'd really like, even though, again, the lack of road games being what they are, I really do like this slate of games after the the tournament in Orlando because I think what we're going to see is a variety of styles. And I think also what we're going to see is a bunch of teams, with the exception of maybe Temple, that are probably going to be in their conversation in their conferences to win their conferences. You know, we people don't talk, people talk, look at those things and say, oh, it's Alport State and it's UMES. UMES was right in the, the MEAC last year and they got a really good coach. Alport State tied for their regular season title last year. These are teams that are, that are expecting to compete in their conferences. And I think the biggest thing is I feel like we should be pretty ready for the A10 based on that we're going to be, we're going to face a, we're not going to be facing similar teams too often. It's going to be a variety of different styles that we're going to get. I think Mike Rhodes talked about that last year, um, especially in, in December in that tough stretch that BCU had, right? With the, we all remember the Jacksonville State loss. Um, and then I remember after the Navy win, they were kind of talking about that, about we wanted to give ourselves kind of an array of different styles because you get that in the A-10. It, it's, teams are going to attack you different ways and so to be prepared to play against a different brand of basketball um, is always good. And I think I'm absolutely with you. They've done a good job of getting some good diversity in the styles that they're going to see going into A-10 play so they can be ready for that. Because um, it's it's when you're fitting a bunch of new pieces together, I think that's particularly valuable, right? To have to win games different ways early in the year and to perhaps know how to, uh, to win different ways together on nights that you can put up 110. That's great. And, and the, the shots are flowing, but there's certainly going to be some games in there against some teams that are going to be strong in conference play where you're not going to get up and down the floor like that. And you're going to have to be gritty and, and get some key steals here and there and dive on the floor and, and get the 50-50 balls right that, that coaches always talk about to, to win those games. And so to, for this new group to kind of tough through a couple together, um, I, I think would be a, a really great growing experience for them headed into conference play. And yes, and now let's talk about conference play. The good and the bad of this is the slate is, I think, fairly favorable to start because, again, the two road games are games that that are well set up for VCU. VCU usually brings a lot of people up to Fairfax, and their record up there is fantastic. The Philly crew will be in full effect at LaSalle. A lot of VCU people go to the games in Philadelphia. But here's the issue. You're not going to get a real hostile road environment for this team until late stinking January. And that's my biggest going to be my biggest question because, again, in, in Orlando, there'll be plenty of BCU fans. And, yeah, there, there may be more of the other team's fans, but it won't be like playing a true road game is going to be. What that's is wild, it? isn't it? That's it wild. Is wild. I've, it's, I've never seen that before. I, me neither. So what's it going to be like? If we go into this game at Davidson and they get down 12 late in the first half and the place is going crazy because it's Pat and the dead gum men swimmers are in their Speedos doing all their nonsense, how is this team going to handle that? 
George, that's a great that's a great question. I don't think any of us know, right? It's it's impossible to know when you don't play your first big road test until January twenty seventh. Um, neither of us have ever seen that before. That's few and far between in college basketball. Bonaventure three days after that, right? That's going to be an incredibly tough back to back test. You're at Davidson January twenty seventh, and then you're going up to to Olean. Is it Olean? Is it Olean? Olean. Okay, okay. Uh, three days later on a Tuesday. That's a really tough turnaround. Um, and then a big rivalry game, obviously, with, with Richmond, and then you're at Fordham, and then you get Dayton. That's the really tough conference yes. stretch, right? And so uh, it's impossible to know how they're going to respond, man, especially with a new group that's that's working out chemistry. Um, you would fully expect to have Sean back, you know, at, at, at that point. And so that'll be nice that you've got a, a nine-man consistent rotation at that point, and Sean has had plenty of time to, to get comfortable with everyone. Uh, and for them to work out what the rotation looks like with him in there. Um, it's impossible to say, right? I think they'll respond. I mean, I think this seems like a really mentally tough group to me, um, even though we you know, we haven't seen them play a whole lot together. Um, all the indications that I've got, they, they read the book together over the off season, right? That Ryan Odom has, has talked about a lot, um, which I believe is uh, about the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team. Um, and Ryan really looks at that book um, as kind of a, uh, an illustration of the the team chemistry um, and of the attitude that it takes to to have a resilient group uh, that can fight through adversity together. And so it's going to take them a while to learn what that road environment looks like. But at the same time, even though you've got so many new pieces together, these are some really experienced college basketball players. Max Shulga and Sean Barristow might be new to the VCU program, but they started 35 games for Utah yeah. State last year and they played in some tough road environments and Zeb Jackson has has been at Michigan and seen some tough road environments in the A10 you know this is this is not a, a wholly inexperienced college basketball team it's just a college basketball team that is inexperienced together and so um, I don't think there's any reason to think that they're gonna shrink you know in a tough road environment just because it took them that long into the season to play one you know um as you said you've got the games in Orlando you got to deal with the travel there and everything and it's certainly not the same as going into a hostile road environment honestly man at that point in the season like i only played you know up through high school and i played high school baseball and and, and stuff but i always kind of preferred and i know that there's some players who prefer being booed you know and and prefer like that hostile environment to the expectations at home because when you're at home and everyone's rooting for you then some people i think feel a certain type of pressure to to, to live up to those standards and to please people. And I think that when it, people are rooting for you to fail, who are there physically, some players respond to that better than they do when everyone's rooting for you to succeed. And so I think, how do we know that VCU doesn't have some players who at that point in the season aren't going to be done? Oh, finally, I, I, we get to, I get booed. I get people yelling at me, like, heck yeah, I missed this. Like, this has been tough the whole year not having this. And so some players respond to that better. And so I think it's entirely possible that that some of these VCU guys, by the, by the time it comes late January, they're going to be licking their chops to to go and do a tough road environment and, and get wins at Davidson and Bonaventure. All right, we're going to do, do the old fill in the blank here with a whole bunch of questions about VCU season and what we can expect. Beyond Max and Sean Barrasseau, the VCU player that will have the biggest breakout is blank. Jason Nelson, from from what we've seen early on this year and him getting an opportunity to play more off the ball, I know that he's talked about how much Ryan Odom's style offensively appealed to him and wanting to come to VCU specifically. 
Um, and in those first couple of games that we've seen him playing, and it, that seems to be coming to fruition really early on, right? So if he has the chance with, with Max and Zeb in there to play off the ball more, which it certainly seems like he's going to, and be more of a catch-and-shoot guy and not have the responsibility of running the offense like he very much did throughout his high school career. And like I think he was kind of asked to do in Richmond was to be a, a ball handler and a pass-first guard. Um, it looks like he's set to play more of an off-the-ball scoring role. Um, and if he can be a catch-and-shoot guy um, who doesn't have all of that ball-handling responsibility, um, and you know, we all know that, that that takes the legs out from under you, right? It's, it's tough to be a consistent knockdown shooter when you're bringing the ball up the floor um, and having to guard the other team's point guard because your legs get tired. You know, and, and, and that's the, the best way to, you know, take away shooters late in the game, right, is to run them up and down the floor and take those legs out from under him. So I think without Jason having to do that, he has a chance to have a really, really strong season from an offensive perspective um, and perhaps score in ways that, that he hasn't since the high school level. Toby Lawal and Roosevelt Wheeler have to combine to average blank for this team to finish high up in the Atlantic 10. That's a great question, and I'll answer it with a point before a number. Wasn't it? Firm started, right, in the, in, in the March Hill game. That, that, yeah. that was interesting to everyone and a, and a, and a good note to have. I, I think maybe that was just to light a fire under Rose, but both of those guys have looked good and really efficient. 20? Okay. I don't think, I don't think Rose needs to be – and that's, you know, that's expecting a breakout from Toby. I think if Rose can average seven, eight points – you know, and have a really productive year because I think what he's going to be asked to do is is be a true five, you know, protect the rim, crash the glass. I want him more, you know, averaging a, a, a block and a half and, and you know, eight, nine, ten boards a game or something like that. That's what I'm more focused on from him. I want him to be focused on doing the dirty work down low. And if he's just living on dunks and putbacks from an offensive standpoint, that's totally fine. So I don't think that he needs to be any kind of a volume scorer for this team to be really successful. I just think he needs to embrace, you know, playing to his skills down low. Um, and seven of seven, right, against Mars Hill. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I think almost all of them, if not all of them, were dunks. And so that's that's fine. He doesn't need to be a creator in any way. He doesn't need to play with his back to the basket and be posting up guys on a consistent basis. He can feed off of the putbacks and the dirty work down low. And that's all Ryan needs from him. Toby it's a different story, right? With everything that we've heard in the off season about the all around game that he's developing, you would certainly hope that that he's facing up a little more and going out to the perimeter and knocking down jump shots and driving on people. And so I'd even say, you know, if that's 14 and six or something like that with, with, with Toby at 14 and Rose at six, then, then that can be enough for, for this team to win. Cause I don't think Rose needs to be a volume scorer. I, I want him focused on, on doing the, the dirty work of a true center. The best A-10 record VCU could achieve is blank. Ooh. George, what'd they go last year? They Were went they... 15 and 3 last year. 16 and 2. The the best that they can achieve. I mean, the ceiling, it I, I still think for this team is is way up there to win the conference. 16 and 2. And that's that's not me saying that's what I expect. Mm-hmm. But this team was finished uh, picked to finish second in the A-10 behind Dayton. I, I do think you have to say Dayton's the clear favorite going into the year. But past that. Bonaventure's got some pieces that I really like. Duquesne has some pieces that I really like. Um, but VCU's right there with those teams. Um, I, and I think that the, the bottom of the conference is pretty bad, right, at the end of the day. And so you're going to be walking on landmines 
throughout the season. You can't you can't lose to Fordham, you know, and and, and make the NCAA tournament. And that's with all due respect to the strides that that program has made um, in in the last year. But um, you're certainly going to be walking on eggshells. I'm I'm pulling up the schedule right here. I was looking at last year's. Where are the trap games that we see? Obviously, at Bonaventure is going to be tough. We talked about that first true road stretch. You don't have to go to Kingston this year, which I know Rhode Island is. Jesus, thank God. See, but maybe this that's the thing, man. Maybe this was the year to go to Kingston because they're supposed to be there's I think they were picked to finish like next to last or something in the conference. So maybe the one year that VCU could have gone up there and 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 you know cakewalk to a victory, all of a sudden they don't get an opportunity. That has been a house of horrors for VCU yes. over the last few years. At Bonaventure is gonna be really tough. At Dayton to finish the year on a on March eighth, that Friday, is gonna be a lot of fun. You're at St. Louis on February 16th that's a Friday as well some really fun Friday 10 games here the home game against Dayton is February 9th that's a Friday my goodness the Seagull Center is going to be rocking for that one it's on ESPN2 I'm, I'm looking at that and already excited for it but looking at the full schedule I think the key will be that Davidson Bonaventure back-to-back right because as you said it's those first four games um LaSalle and Mason no disrespect to them at all but those don't really feel like true road tests with with how well VCU travels to to those arenas, it's that it's that back to back with Davidson and Bonaventure. If you get past that and you still haven't lost a conference game, this team is going to be brimming with confidence, right? And so that's the big test that you look at. If they can get out of that still unscathed in the A10, then yeah, this team could win 15, 16 games. Um, what's realistic? Probably 14, 13, right? I mean, I think that's a more realistic expectation. I think that. Dayton might be dominant in A-10 play. And then past that, VCU, Duquesne, Bonaventure are, are going to be good and probably jockeying for position next to one another um, in that 2-3-4 range with, the, with those buys uh, in the first round of the A-10 tournament going into Brooklyn. And I think that's really what should be the goal for VCU, right? Is I think that the realistic expectation would be let's get that double buy in the A-10 tournament and be one of those top seeds because it, it's tough to expect a, a replica of last year with how good Dayton should be. But I think that the bottom of the conference is still pretty bad. Um, and so I, it's totally realistic to hope for VCU to win 13 to 14, 15 games in conference play. All right. We just have some general other questions here before we get on out of here. And I'll, I'll just throw in this. If we're talking about a trap game where it might be a team that's not as good, it would be at St. Louis because that's right after we play Dayton. Mm-hmm. even though that's also a Friday. If we're talking about a trap game, that's a trap game just because of where it is. Duquesne at home, which is between Richmond and Dayton. Yeah. Uh, it could be a trap, although you would li- I would like to hope that given what they did to VCU last year, that would be like waving the red cape in front of the pool. We'll see if that's the case. I, I think Duquesne's going to be really good this year. So I think they're going to be good too. It may not be that. How much of a shame is it seeing Jimmy Clark, man? No, but He's a really I don't good player. Talk about it, honestly. He's I don't. A really good player. And I he's, don't want to talk about like, it. I was so upset when he got kicked off the team. You can see so much of why VCU recruited him too, right? He looks like a VCU guy. Like yeah. he is tough. He does not look fun to play against. He is gritty, and he definitely had a vendetta in that last season playing VCU. He shoe shuffled and danced all over VCU last year, and. It'll be interesting to see what the crowd's like for him coming back because I think he was a well-liked and well-respected player, which is why that whole thing was so shocking 
when he ended up off the team and out of the university altogether. But everybody, well, maybe not everybody, most people saw what happened at the end of that game when he threw the ball off the backboard and dunked it. You don't do that if you don't have us feel a certain time away towards the university. I'm going to be interested to see how that goes when that when that time comes because that's one thing. I kind of wish that game was early in the A-10 instead of late for that reason among many others. He was on my uh, A-10 all-defensive ballot. I think you had to pick five players, and he was up there for me. I love watching that kid play defense, everything that happened with, with BCU aside. He's, he's, he's my kind of guard, man. He's tough. And, and he's a Keith Danbrock kind of guard, which is why he did so well last year. Mm-hmm. So some other things. Could Kawani Kawani be a sort of slightly lesser version of Vince Williams in the sense that he Ooh. can stuff with the stat, stat sheet? You look at, and again, it's Morris Hill, I understand. Seven boards, two assists, two steals, two blocks. That's the kind of stuff Vince Williams did on a regular basis, which is what made him a two-time all-conference player. Is that is Kawani Kawani heading in that direction? I think so from an overall makeup standpoint. He's not the ball handler that Vince is, right? Vince was a point forward who was sometimes bringing the ball up the court and yep. initiating the offense, was a great passer and everything. And I don't think that Kawani is that kind of ball handler. That's the one facet of his game that's kind of missing. But I love the comparison from the standpoint of a, of a forward who operates in a really versatile sense, who can contribute and come in and crash the glass, good at setting up teammates, good on the catch and shoot, um, can shoot off the dribble too. Um, and Kawani, I think, probably has more of a chance to affect the game defensively. I mean, Vince was a Vince is a good defensive player, but I think Kawani's length and his ability to to protect the rim is superior, um, and his ability to clog passing lanes is superior. I could see him, you know, being more of a defensive presence for for VCU, and so I think that there's there's certainly some ways in which those skill sets contrast, but. Um, there, definitely he can contribute in similar ways and operate on the perimeter with some of those guard skills that Vince had. Man, how much fun has it been to see him um, at the in the G League and NBA level? Um, he's, he's been really fun to watch. That skill set has, has really translated to the next level. He's a pro ball player. Final question before we get out of here. VCU won 24 regular season games last year. I'm going to presume that Max Fluga is healthy also this year and we see him play 30-plus games. I'm going to presume that after the injury, Sean Barristow plays most of, if not the rest of the entire season. I'm also going to assume that Joe Bama still doesn't play based on what you said earlier. I'm going to set the over-under at 22.5 wins going into the tur- going into the postseason, going into the A-10 tournament. Over-under 22.5 wins for VCU when we get to the A-10 tournament. Over, over, definitively over for me because I think the bottom of the A-10 is bad, right? And so I think that they should have a chance to rack up plenty of wins in conference play. Between that and, you know, we've we've lauded some of these teams here that that aren't big names coming into the Siegel Center early in the year. And and for good reason, they're they're good. Samford and McNeese State and Seattle programs are going to have a chance to to have good years in conference play and Radford and Alcorn State. But the fact of the matter is you should win those games at the Siegel Center 110%, right? So like non-conference expectation-wise, we were hoping for two wins in Orlando, right? Let's just go ahead and say one win in Orlando, which is which is, which is is modest. You know, I think this team is fully capable of winning one game. And let's say they, they lose to Memphis, right? And I think it's t- entirely realistic to expect them to win every other conference game, 
right? So that gives them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten wins headed into a ten play. And then we were saying what twenty definitively over looking okay. at that with how weak the bottom of the a10 is and how so many of those non-conference games are at home i don't expect them to drop any of those games um like we said those are those are teams that you can't sleep on but at the seagull center i really think if you say two losses in orlando and a loss to memphis that's realistic to to expect three losses going into a10 play and perhaps they're fully capable of winning two games in orlando and so if you if you have that going into A10 play, then what? You need to win 13 A10 games to, to hit the over there, to hit the over. And so I think, yeah, I'm going to say definitively over. I think this team wins 24, 25 games. I will say for the record that Zach is a little more confident than I am. And I appreciate that confidence as he's, as he's seen a lot more of this team than I do. And he's been closer to it than I have. As always, Zach, it is a joy whenever you come on here and join our podcast. We really appreciate it here at Rams Rewind. And of course, as ever, we believe in shameless self-promotion. So anything you want to you want to shout out in terms of stuff you're writing for the Times Dispatch, Richmond.com, or social media, or anything like that, go ahead. Ah, uh, my Twitter's Zach Joaquim. It's, it, it's just my name. Go follow me if you enjoy the content. I apologize that the VCU content is a little intermittent right now. This this crossover between high school football season and VCU season is killing me. And I'll be doing the all-metro team, you know, through December and into Christmas. So it's really not until January that my attention turns entirely to, to VCU basketball. And so once we hit the new year, then it really will be more consistent VCU content. And I'll obviously be at every game early on in the year. Um, but I had to go back and, and watch the Mars Hill exhibition afterward and look through the box score and everything because I was covering Highland Springs and Verina on Saturday and so I apologize for how intermittent it's a little old high school football game between just a little one just teams in the area just that oh my gosh it was so much fun by the way I'm gonna I'll I'll throw out a a a little bit about that man 20 to 19 Highland Springs Verina freshman quarterback came in when their starter got hurt and threw three touchdown passes kid was amazing I went over and interviewed him uh, today to to do a piece on him. Let's publish him tomorrow. Um, Antoine Craig, I'll, I'll throw out is one thing. It's on the front page of the paper tomorrow. Um, he's a local Richmond area athlete um, who's looking to compete in the Paralympics this year. He he plays for USA Blind Soccer. Um, he had a, a degenerative impairment called retinitis pigmentosa um, that he gradually lost his vision over the course of his life. And and he's a internationally accomplished sprinter um, and uh, and plays blind soccer for the U.S. and he's a skier. There was a big uh, national uh, blind skiing organization meet that he went to last year. He's just an amazing, amazing human being. Um, and he's getting his doctorate at Virginia State right now. Um, he got did his undergrad at VCU, has worked with athletes at UR. Um, and so just a ton of local ties. Um, one of my favorite human beings that I've ever gotten a chance to interview. So if you get a chance, go to richmond.com and pick up a paper tomorrow and, and read about Antoine Craig because he has inspired me and I hope he does you. Fantastic. Well, that is the VCU preview as we are getting ready for the season. We're almost there, folks. We're almost there. It has been such a long wait for November. Finally here. So I hope you enjoyed this, everyone out there. Zach, thank you as always. And until next time, this is Rams Rewind. Thank you very much. To submit a question for George to answer in an upcoming episode or to inquire about sponsorship opportunities for this podcast, please email ramsrewind at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rams Rewind.